0: Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman.
1: Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got another great guest for you, fellow podcaster. He's a broker. I uh, Got a great brand. I'm kind of fond of it because it's similar to mine, but on the broker's side. Please help me welcome my guest, Max Baker. Max, how's it hey, going, Fer- man?
2: Hey, man. Thanks for having me, and it's a long time coming. I know you're popular guy these days being the attorney that uh is the lawyer.com so uh, congrats to all your success and and uh what you are doing for the industry i'm grateful for you
1: no thank you likewise and so i, I see your stuff all the time i saw you recently a few weeks back at a conference we decided to get together on this um so i know your background but for those of our audience that do not maybe give us a little bit of your background and how you got into mh
2: Uh, So, um, the way, way back story is uh, I was in the Marine Corps for four years. Um, I was a trumpet player in the Marine Corps band. And what I was doing then is I was uh, financing and making hard money loans to fellow Marines that uh, were looking for short-term cash and also um, people that were looking to get an upgraded musical instrument. I went out and bought it for them and took payments on it, just like a Lonnie dealer would. (laughs) And uh, then uh, my dad bought a park in, uh, I believe, Aiken, South Carolina. And he said, uh, he said, Max, do you want to invest in a mobile home? It's about the same price as this trumpet you just bought this guy, which was around $3,500. And uh, this was back in 2004. And I said, yeah, I'll I'll give it a shot. And it's like, you know, I went in and I was living in California at the time and and, uh, I was like, okay, let's do this from afar. And I hired him when I got out, um, in 2005, I did a few of them over there in his park and I was managing the contractors, rehabbing them and finding tenants and then ended up, uh, selling them for cash eventually. And then I just had a, like, I had an itch. I was like, man, this is pretty cool. So when I got into college, I started buying and flipping mobile homes. Uh, I put a, an ad in the local penny saver, We Buy Mobile Homes in the middle of Statesboro, Georgia. And this was back in 2005 and six. And uh, I got a slew of calls because nobody in their right mind was buying used mobile homes back then. It was like, who is buying used mobile homes? Who's crackhead is doing this? And this was back when uh, Frank and Dave had that website called mobilehomers.com. I don't know if y'all ever saw that. Um, but, uh, but anyways, I had the idea just from doing it with my dad and my very first deal, I ended up in a lawsuit and in court on my own because I didn't do the paperwork right on the rent to own contracts. And, uh, that was, uh, <laughs> I got in there, the, in the attorney, uh. Didn't even review the case until day of he charged me $3,500, which in college, that was a lot of, it's still a lot of money, but in college, when you're just trying to make it, that's a lot of money. And I get there and the judge is like, oh, this, and, uh, this is, uh, you guys listen to both sides. And he's like, you know, guys, I'm going to decide to not decide. I'm like, how do you, how does that even work? Like, can judges actually do that? (laughs) So obviously they can. (laughs) So I ended up, uh, you know, selling the home and, you know, figuring it out. But uh, man, that was a hell of a learning curve for me to go through that. And the next few of next few of them, I did. I obviously had the paperwork right because it had an attorney look at it, and versus just some uh, uh, seminar gave me some paperwork, and I just tried to deal with it that way. But but anyway, so then from there, uh, I uh, went to school and got my degree in real estate. And then uh, decided I wanted to be a broker to start out with because I was like, you know, the mobile home, you know, doing the Lonnie dealers back then. And what I mean by Lonnie dealers is Lonnie Scruggs. It's a guy that basically created the buy here, pay here model for used mobile homes and mobile home parks. Great, great book. If you've never read it, it was before Frank and Dave. And um, anyway, so. Um, uh, I started doing brokerage or start out in retail. Then I realized like, why the hell am I doing retail? I'm going to go over to mobile home parks, went over to Marcus and um, uh, before they went public, learned a lot about brokerage. Everybody thought I was crazy for going into mobile home park brokerage back in 2009. They're like, even my dad was like, what are you doing? Like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, there's not any movement. And then I, I uh, I was like, really, I'm pretty sure there's movement. Um, because based off of my research, I had hired a couple of people in India and we literally just data mined the whole entire state of Georgia. Um, and then I found out that like, wow, there is actually a movement. Georgia is doing around 40, 50 transactions a year on mobile home parks. Sounds like as a broker, that's pretty good to make a living off of. Um, so before you knew it, I was doing, um, I would say it was close to like 50, 60% of the transactions just in Georgia when I started. Because not very many people were out there doing deals. um, And there really was no competition in secondary tertiary markets doing the ugly deals. And that's really what I specialized in was the stuff that was ugly and wasn't the most beautiful mobile home park that you would see. A lot of our competitors, the bigger guys, uh, they're more I'd say they're more white glove bro- brokers um, versus you know what I've specialized in has always been the stuff that has got high returns, a little rough around the edges, the lagoons, a lot of park-owned homes. Um, but I will say that as a broker, and I'm kind of you know touting myself here as the best broker out there, is being that I have been through all of the really crappy deals in my career, I've kind of seen it all. So when a big deal falls in our lap or we find a big deal, like any drama that comes across it, I'm kind of like, all right, I know how to handle that. Or oh, I can call this guy and he'll help me with navigate that. So the the small and medium-sized deals have given me a hell of an education on like what to look out for. And then from there, I I started buying deals. I buy parks as well. Um, I'm lucky if I can get one or two deals a year, I don't have a massive appetite to buy a bunch of stuff. I like to kind of stick around, like, you know, um, anywhere between five and 10 parks at a time. Um, that's really kind of my bread and butter. And, you know, I don't need any more than that. So I'm happy doing the brokerage thing. Uh, we've since uh, expanded. We're in 36 states now. I'm licensed in nine of them. And I've got a bunch of relationships with other brokerage, uh, uh, other uh, brokers out there that let me uh, work in these other states. And, uh, we've got a lot of stuff cooking. we we've gone out and, um, researched and found all the recent transactions in all the part on all these 36 States. So like, we know who the active buyers are. So when a broker comes on our team and they're like, we want to specialize in Maine, I'm like, all right, well, in the last 12 months here are the, all the active buyers in that state, they've all transacted. This is what they all price per pad. So if you kick up a deal, we've already got a laundry list of buyers ready to go. Uh, that have transacted really in these deals. And we've also looked up the lenders. So not only do we have the buyers, we've also got all the lenders that have financed all the deals that have transacted. So we've got a pretty good niche for just because I'm a data junkie, in case you don't notice, we've got like office space in Bangalore. There's about uh, 10 people over there that all they do is rent comps, sales comps. uh, uh, You know, they do back of house management for our properties. Um, We've got uh, about 25 people on our team. We've got five brokers pending, another two coming on board. Um, So it's been a challenge uh, just to grow uh, because we're all 1099 and we're all virtual. Uh, We're a completely virtual company. So I've had to create a culture to how to manage and operate uh, salespeople that are 1099 that's been a hell of a learning curve to go through because when they're w2 versus 99 1099 it's just a different style of management that you've got to deal with uh with brokers and whatnot so i kind of went on a tangent there, it, but that's kind of me in a nutshell
1: (laughs) all right well lots lots to unpack you know i know you've i've heard you on your podcast as well talk about these tertiary markets secondary markets so what how is today we're recording this in october of 23 I think from what I can tell, the market's really slowed, less transactions, less transactions closing. How has that impacted your businesses? Have you noticed a difference on the deals that are the tertiary markets? Are those ones unscathed or are they being, are they harmed more? And and how's that impacting cap rates?
2: So uh, in a nutshell, whatever the interest rate is at, um, 200 basis points above that is typically where it's going to trade some people will do 250 basis points. So if you're paying an eight cap or better yet, if you're having to pay 8% on your money, then you're looking at a 10 cap is where people are wanting to buy stuff at um, seven, you know, nine. So it just depends on what kind of lender you have. The stuff I specialize in that we do the bigger deals uh, based off of our research, 80% of the market out there is below 50 units. Um, and the other 20% are the bigger deals. And a lot of our competitors like to specialize in the big, big deals, there's bigger paychecks and those for them, uh, but there's just way more velocity in the smaller ones. And the reason why is there's way more creative financing, a lot more JV, like we're as a broker, we're coming to the table to these sellers are like, hey, we want to get this and we're trying to get this, you know, price on it. And I was like, "Well, you're not going to get that because of where interest rates are A and B. If you do want to get that, you know, we can do owner financing or B. If you want to stay in the deal, we can JV the partnership with somebody so that way you can participate in the growth of the upside in your community. So, it really just depends on where your debt is and we've got a couple of lenders that we've found that we're seeing quotes uh in the high sevens upwards uh eight and a half for community lenders our uh, community banks i should say and uh we had some really good luck with credit unions credit unions are actually uh the shining light right now in the interest rate world because they're a nonprofit, obviously so it's tough to compete uh for a non-profit um bank versus a community bank are you gonna say something
1: no, I see that I see that a lot in, as well as, you know, within today's market, you're seeing more seller carry, you're seeing joint ventures, you're seeing even master lease of the option to purchase. Um, in, I'm curious, two years ago, if rates were 200 bips lower, were you still seeing the same 200 bips spread or has it has it gone
2: up or down? Um, on the I, would, I would say uh, a couple of years ago when interest rates were lower, I mean, obviously the the spread was wider, or, or smaller, I should say. Uh, people were willing to be a little bit more aggressive, uh, but it's it seems like right now that 200 bips is the minimum that buyers are willing to consider. Uh, just be, and it's like compacting, like they're like, no, nah, I can't do it, no, 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 no. So it's. Before, people were way more liberal about uh, what they were willing to pay, and uh, interest rates were obviously much lower, but uh, there wasn't as much creative financing as there is now, so it's um, it's a lot tougher uh, to get deals done, but we're still getting deals done. I mean, the thing is, people, there's always going to be divorces. Unfortunately, people pass away, and you know families need to cash out, and you know, there's sickness and stuff. So it's just, uh, there's always, you know, there's always going to be movement, um, in these smaller to medium sized deals. Albeit they're a little tougher to get through the, to the closing table. But a lot of times there's a lot of meat on the bone. Cause you probably know this for, but a lot of these mom and pops, uh, don't raise rents continuously. They don't sure. take care of stuff. They don't put reserves away. The roads start deteriorating. So there's just a laundry list of things that they don't do. They're not like the you know the five star communities where they actually put reserves away right. to, to buy deals. So,
1: <laughs> well, and all all else being equal, the smaller deals typically the seller has not received as many phone calls, right? So their prices yeah. are more prices are just naturally more reasonable. If you've got a two hundred and fifty site community right now, you've been found and you've received a hundred phone calls and postcards. Correct. And some of those are at really strong numbers and perhaps even over price numbers. So at some point, mom and pa, let her go, right? There's, I think there's very few uh, 250 site parks left that mom owned that are occupied and stable and running well and worthwhile, um, at least worthwhile to, you know, stabilize cap rate. So I, I, I definitely see opportunities in smaller deals. Obviously, the, there's lots of pros of bigger deals, not just in the broker side, but on the operator side, that, you know, a $10 run increase uh, moves the needle quite a bit on 150 sites, not on 15 um, and then just economies of scale. So, yeah, pros and cons for sure. Um, wh- what else? You, what else you see in the marketplace, or what are projections you have? You know, right now, I mean, I, I feel like if you know the transactions volume slowing. But for example, if a couple years ago my interest rate was four percent and I bought it at a six cap, I would rather have a seven percent interest rate than buy at a nine cap. Now, can yeah. I get that transaction done in nine cap? Either way, I've got a similar cash flow spread. But if I'm buying at that set, if I'm buying at that nine cap, at some point, my rate may go back down. I can refinance where I feel like people are getting in trouble or going to be in more and more trouble and probably probably more in the apartment space than MH. I read read an article this morning where these apartment guys were buying at the three and a half, four cap, including with short term loans of, say, three year balloon. And then like, oh, well, we'll just refinance out of it at a four and a half cap three years from now. And by then, rents will be 20 percent higher. And the problem is if rents keep going higher, occupancy goes down. And we all know interest rates have gone way up. So they now have a business plan they can't exit from. They can't implement and they can't really exit. Um,
2: We've actually been monitoring um, all the sales over the last 10 years in these 36 states. And, uh, you know, we're seeing which deals traded during certain years and then we're contacting them to see if they are going to sell or B they need to refinance or if they're in trouble, like we'll go out and see what their plan is. A lot of times they're like, look, I'm, you know, either a, uh, in trouble because of what our debt payment is. I mean, cause you got to realize like some of these balloons coming up, I mean, they're, uh, they were buying stuff at like four and a half, five and a quarter. And now they're going to jump up to like eight and a half, nine. Right so uh if you bought that thing with a spread of nothing like i mean i'm sorry y'all but it it is what it is the writing's on the wall so you know make your money and and uh you know some of these people are just gonna have to sell or gonna have to go back with their hat in hand to the lenders and say look you know i can't pay that um based on what we paid so what do you recommend um so it's just um it's gonna it's gonna be interesting, um, but movement breeds wealth, right? So I uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about it, uh, but I really don't feel like um, the industry is gonna hurt too much. Like the apartment world, the apartment world was I think heavy on just trading paper. Let's just what they call it, uh, just to buy deals, but there's a lot of upside in a lot of mobile home parks. So if you bought a deal that had a ton of upside or even like, you know, 20, 30% upside, I, my humble opinion is you're going to be okay. If you actually performed at that level, it's just these other food groups that are in commercial real estate. Uh, I'm a little nervous about for them. Right. You know, no,
1: I, I think, I think MH is more insulated as well. I mean, in particular, you've got more room for rent growth. You've got the ability to infill lots um, you probably bought it at a more attractive cap rate so you can absorb a little bit of pain. Uh, but I am seeing lenders more and more conservative lately. It's just, it's October 5th when we're recording this. And the last three years, it maybe deals have dropped because of the lender. And I just didn't find out from our clients. But in the last three years, I've never had a client say, bank pulled the plug last minute for no reason. And that's happened three times in the last three weeks. Whereas it's
2: scary all oh, that part.
1: Yeah, like and I, and they're asking me, like, what can we do? Can we fight the bank Can we sue? And I'm like, let me see your term sheet and your commitment letter. And the term sheet says typically this is a non-binding term sheet, subject to lenders' final underwriting appraisal, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, Do you have a loan commitment? And they're like, What's that? I'm like, well, that's the commitment. And that generally comes last minute, a few days before closing. Generally on a like a Fannie Mae deal, even if it's only a couple of days before closing. And on a lot of local banks, you never even get one. They just say, yeah. oh, we're good, we're good. Oh, closing's on Friday, closing's on Friday. And then they close. So well, that was clearly the commitment. They you know, they honored it, but a lot of banks are resistant to providing a commitment. And then I've had two deals. Um, one of them was mine years ago um, where the bank pulled the plug last minute. And, and it was like, wait, you already told me I had approval. They go, well, you do have approval. That was from committee. It's like, who else is supposed to approve it? well, the CEO has the right to veto. And in my case, I said, why are they vetoing it? They go, they don't like that state. I'm like, you've noticed... Well, Why'd you waste my time? <laughs> they're like, Yeah, we didn't realize that. We figured you were a repeat borrower. We'd follow you a new state and he just doesn't like that state. And then the one with the client last week, this was like five years ago on that one. Um, So it actually did happen to me, but um, uh, we going to find another bank to take care of the client recently. They're like, yeah, we don't like this uh, location because it's really dependent on the oil. So they're like... You've known that oil is a big industry. That's generally a positive. That it's got all these jobs. I'm like, well, sorry, we're out. And I suspect it's not the truthful answer. And the bank is just like has their own problems, their own liquidity problems. Because this is a repeat customer. They own probably I don't know 1,500 sites or something. So you know, a pretty good size operator. You know, re you know strong balance sheet. And the bank just left them at the altar. Yeah, and they're a hundred grand into DD.
2: That's tough, man. Yeah.
1: So lessons learned you know check in with your banker regularly. try this is this is probably not the time to uh, go to a new bank even if the rate's a little lower. Stick with the relationship you already have where you have a higher certainty of them honoring their you know quote terms. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's great advice for it. I, um, I mean advice that I'm gonna take. Yeah because you know, we uh, we dealing with I mean we've got 12 parks under contract right now um so it's like a lot of them are owner financing there's a few of them we're placing the debt on and um that loan commitment is the uh, is the all be all like they and they always wait to the last minute to to give it <laughs> right. to you it's kind of their style it's it's i mean it's business you got you understand it but it is a little shady on how they handle it but not much yeah. you can do about it they make you know those who have the gold make the rules right
1: <laughs> right well all right, Max. Well, tell me, tell me what else um, you got tips for buyers. How does a buyer stand out in today's marketplace, where they have to just look at a ton of deals, make offers on a ton of deals, or is it better to, you know, give a specific narrow target for you to find?
2: Uh, I mean, the best thing that you can do for being a buyer is really figure out what your criteria is, and then just live it, breathe it, and be it. Uh, the worst part of the worst buyers out there are real fickle what they want and and trying to do this, try to do that. Like if it meets your criteria, you know, if you're saying, look, it's a 35% expense ratio, it's a nine cap. This is the demos, you know, uh, that I'm looking for. This is the infrastructure I'm looking for. Boom, pull the trigger. And it's, you know, obviously within 10% of that is, is doable. But as far as like, you know, we've got a couple of buyers that we love to sell to because they literally they know who they are they know what they're trying to do and they've done so much research on themselves and what their capability is that when they come to the table it's like good as gold it's like we bring them so many off-market deals just because they're just reliable there's no drama they don't retrade us on fees either as a broker like there's some guys out there and girls i won't mention them obviously but they'll come in and just retrade you at the last minute saying, look, we're not, we, you're not worth that fee. And I'm like, why are you saying this right at the end? We've got something in writing and you're going to ruin the relationship. So obviously stuff like that uh, is going to put you at the no list, no yeah, call yeah, list. I guess right right? <laughs> like, like we have a, we've got a blacklist in our sales forces. Like don't oh, call wow. this person uh, just because they just, there's drama around them. You know what I mean? Like as a broker, We like to do business with people that like to do business with us and make it easy to do business with. It's like park owners out there. Park owners are going to want to do business with you if you're easy to work with. But if you're constantly trying to come at them and retrade them and this and that nickel and dime them the closing, as soon as they get a letter from me, a broker saying, hey, here are some things that you should look out for if you see them then call me i get a lot of calls from people saying like hey this buyer did this he retraded me like 30 percent off of what he said he was going to buy for and i'm like well sorry to hear that man but I was like by the way i've got two or three other people here that would love to buy your deal and they'll pay you full price so it's like it just you just got to be easy to deal with um the egos and the cockiness and that, that stuff is, is old school, um, at least in my humble opinion, when it comes to doing business. Like, obviously, everybody struggles with their own ego, but, you know, it's the people that are like a couple of clients that I have that are humble but still hustle and they make a killing. I mean, those are the ones that they're getting the juicy deals. Um, you know, so I don't know if that answers your question, but.
1: No, it's good. Good, good thoughts. Uh, good point what percentage of your deals would you say that you close are on market listings versus pocket listings and, and why, and, and, and when, and how, why do you do one versus the other? I think I know, you know, there's a privacy component to a pocket deal that the seller prefers, but I would think that pocket deals are going to trade for a, a lesser price in most instances.
2: So we have some competitors out there that really only do off market stuff. They do a lot of it um, and good for them. Um, that's not our business model. The, pro- the problem with off market stuff is you can't do the impeccable front end due diligence that we do when we exclusively list something. And uh, I'm all about, a am I'm a, I'm kind of a risk averse guy. I'm all about high probabilities. If I can increase the probability of close in any situation, I'm going to do that. Um, so exclusive listings, that is a high probability of close as a broker. Um, because I mean, at the end of the day, we're just, gambling our time and odds here, right? That's like literally what we're doing. And uh, these off-market deals, albeit they are sexy, um, they're fun because they come in real quick and you can slam them together and whatnot. But the ones that are off-market like that personally, um, that are sexy and you can slam them together typically have zero drama around them. Like they don't have the lagoons, like the books and records are legit. The seller is easy to work with. You know, so those those uh, those deals are, you know, the massive deals out there that are big portfolios like I see a lot of those way more often. But for us, I would say we're like an 80% exclusive 20% off market. Um, It's starting to teeter towards more off market um, as we get better at identifying all the variables. That buyers look for, like, there's a couple of guys out there that specialize in lagoons, Um, so they get a lot of lagoon deals. There's a couple of people out there that specialize in only park-owned home communities, so they get a lot of those. So, as a broker, we've kind of categorized what type of buyers are out there, so we identify an opportunity and increases probability of close. So then we basically just plugging it together like a puzzle. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, I think so. So the pocket listing and typically when you're doing one of those to your knowledge are you the only person working on it despite not having an exclusive listing or are you and 10 other brokers pitching the same deal to me because i because i regular, i sometimes see not regular but i sometimes see somebody say hey pocket listing just for you you know let me know today and i'll be like you're the third person today that forwarded that one to me and it's yeah like daisy, it's like a daisy chain it's not even yeah they're not even brokers it's they're, not, they're like not even wholesalers they're just like bird dog referral people like oh but i got my fee and the. sometimes they'll try to hide their fee sometimes they won't sometimes the fee is reasonable sometimes it's crazy high
2: yeah um so i guess the question you have is um on the off market um i kind of got lost there in what you were saying
1: because well, I, I mean in, gen- in general i mean just as a buyer there's this imp- imp- implied scenario that hey this is off market just to you it's a special deal it should be a million dollars but it's only 900 hurry up and act and i'm like if it's just if it's really supposed to be a million why is the guy listing it for me and we look at it and then it's like why 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 me you know and by the way why why did the guy give it to you and what's your role and am i paying your fee or are you paying the fee and it's like, is the seller and everyone's like oh it doesn't really we don't know it feels like i don't care it just in general feels like does anybody know what's going on here? You know, some broker, and then you, and then you get data. I've had this happen where I'm like, all right, it's 40 occupied out of 50. Okay. Here's my price. And then they'll send an email back like, wait, it's actually 32 out of 37. It's like, how did you not get the data right? Or brokers will say, here's the deal. 50 sites, 2 million. I'll say, how many occupied? They go, uh, let me get back to you. What's the lot rent? Uh, it's like, and they won't, they don't want to give you the address because they don't want you to go around them. I'm like, you guys didn't even ask the basic five questions to the seller. So I just, so, the to me, the off market p- process is is mostly
2: it's a shit show.
1: Let's be real, a waste of a waste of my time. <laughs> it's I a also, shit like, show. Maybe, miss, maybe I'm missing out on the deals. Oh the
2: the, the off market ones are your white glove deals, and like if they like uh, brokers out there that are hitting and and hot kicking the bushes and shaking the trees are bird dogging these big guys out there and they're shaking the tree and be like, Hey, let me just bring you an offer. Let me just bring you an offer. And they just bring them an off market offer. Uh, these other deals that are smaller. Um, it's a lot filled with drama. Um, you know, for us personally, um, we, uh, we send out about 20,000 mailers a month. Um, a month? And, yeah. A month. Um, oh, wow. And I spend about half a million dollars on mailers and research a year. Um, and, um, the variable is, is, uh, when we get a call, those are typically true off market deals. Like we're just getting it. And a lot of times we'll compete even on that. Like the seller will call us and say, Hey, can you do a valuation? I've got two or three offers on the table And and I will do like a real quick BPO. And they're just like, oh, I want, you know, $5 million for this. And they're like, well, why didn't you take it? And he's like, well, I just want to see what it is, see what you guys can offer. And I was like, that's a pretty good offer. I mean, if I were you, I would take it. Otherwise, yeah. if you want to list it, you know, we can probably juice it up a little bit. But I mean, we, we're we we're very like, as a company, um, I tell everybody on our team, we're we're gamblers of time. We're always trying to increase probability. I wish, I wish I could have, I wish I could bill out $500 an hour, but that's not how it works. We got to be real strategic on like where I'm spending my time because like you get these Daisy chain deals. I mean, we have wholesalers that hit me up and I'm like, and I'm getting, it's crazy. I'm getting calls now from wholesalers and it's like, The problem is, is the wholesalers are probably having the same issue that we're kind of having. And that is the debt market is, is just killing deals. So like, you know, what you could wholesale, you know, 24 months ago, because people could go out and get a regular bank loan is like an eight cap deal doesn't make sense anymore. Like it just doesn't work. So now they're calling the broker and I'm like, I mean, dude, if you let me exclusively list it and go source the debt for you, then yeah, I'll be able to sell it at like an eight and a half, maybe a nine. But like, as it sits right now, like you're overpriced. That's just where you're at and you're trying to get 50 grand on top of that. Like, right. it's just not gonna work. So, you know, uh, we don't, as a company for like, we're very picky on what off-market deals we let do. Like, I mean, we've got a couple of them we're working now and, you know, they come and go about as quick as a fart in the breeze. (laughs) Cause like, as soon as we, as soon as we see it, we'll, we'll identify it. We'll see if the seller is reasonable and easy to work with. That's another variable. If the seller is not easy to work with, like good luck trying to do a a deal slam. It's like, not only is the market harder to do deals, but if the seller is difficult too, like you just got all these barriers. So like, we'll just drop them. Like, we're not going to work that. Like we have a meeting every Tuesday and our entire company goes over deal flow. And we talk about off-market and exclusives and what's under contract. And we all have a, we have a ratio. We have a scale like 60% chance, 70% chance. And we go through all, I don't know, we have like 60 deals all at the same time we're always looking at. And then like, I'm, I'm kind of quarterbacking it. I'm uh, Not kind of, I am quarterbacking it at a macro view and like something will come up, and then one of the senior guys will say, like, "Look, have you tried this on that off market deal? Um, by the way, I think I have a buyer that'd be interested in your off market deal, Jeff." Uh, so we we go over our entire portfolio of deals, and we're trying to just put deals together, and we talk about like uh, what's reasonable, what's not reasonable. We actually even do, uh, you know, believe it or not, this is kind of crazy. We do a, a a regular underwriting meeting call where we get on zoom and we just talk about underwriting and that's, that's really that's really helped with off-market process because like you know, off-market deal comes in we're able to like see you know which variables are going to cause headaches with some, the most probable buyers that we think would take it down so it's uh it's pretty um it's a difficult off-market stuff is squirrely man i uh I, I commend the the big guys out there that do them there's like i said there's a couple of big guys that do a lot of off-market stuff but um for me i i like i said i'm kind of risk adverse and i like the exclusive way because it just increases probabilities uh, of close when you as a broker can control the listing and can get a deal done and have like six months to sell it and bring multiple offers and all that jazz So, but the off-market stuff is uh it's tough man. It's uh <laughs> I feel like you're chasing your tail and the in the in the fallout rate on off-market suffered like it is it's high.
1: Oh like for fallout during contract? Yes. Yeah, fallout, that's true.
2: Extremely. Yeah, I
1: I high. see I see a lot of it on the law side where clients are coming to these like, "How would you find this deal? Oh, off-market." And then the, yeah, those cuz it's a concern for us cuz like obviously we bill by the hour, but it's like the more if there's a closing, we have a very high probability of getting paid. If they, if they work on it for 10 hours and the guy doesn't get it done, he might not pay us. You know, if it's a repeat customer or somebody with a strong reputation, we think they will. But so we're we're, we're not as much as a broker, but we're rooting for them. Like, hey, we hope you close. But our job is also to tell you, here's why you shouldn't close. So that's just, you know, Then they appreciate that, that candor. But yeah, off-market stuff, I know is a little... So little you
2: see it too, like the off-market stuff crashes and, yeah, and Sometimes
1: when sometimes we don't know if it's off-market or not, but you can often tell. You know, just by the deal. You know, the the nature of it. You know, on my buy side, when I'm buying deals, I've got a couple brokers that, and some of them are like pretty good sized groups. Like, have web page. This is what they do. There's five brokers there, and they'll bring me a deal. They'll be like, "Hey, I got a deal just for you. I've been working this guy. He's in your market. He said he'll sell." I'm like, "All right, let's look at it." And I'll look at the value, and I'm like, "Hmm, that's this is worth two million. You're asking for." He's like, "Yeah, but he'll sell." (laughs) <laughs> so sell you don't have a, you don't have an off-market listing this guy told you fine bring me a buyer for me and then i'll pay you like that's not an off-market listing that is this guy telling you to go away you just you're too dumb to recognize that he sent you on a wild goose chase and now you've got me wasting time on it so we have guys now that i'm just like delete delete i'm like i'm not and they'll call me sometimes like hey did you get my listing i'm like i'm not even looking at your emails anymore <laughs> your your assumptions are so poor
2: it's It's a challenge man because a lot of brokers are now coming into the industry that never were here like less than five years ago like they just there's a lot of new blood coming into it and and uh, you know I'm, I'm actually getting calls from brokers out there that are from different industries that are suffering like in the retail and tenant rep stuff and they're just like Max, how is a mobile home park brokerage? I'm like, it's, I tell him this is freaking hard. It's like, there's so many variables. It's not like a triple net asset where you just have a long-term lease and you go based off of credit rating. Like it's, uh, there's uh, so many variables involved. And if you don't know them, like you could get your, I mean, you slam your head against the door so many times, like it's just, but good on them. I mean, let them like, I'm, I'm all about it. And the more the merrier, it's just, uh. It, it, it puts a lot of bad taste in a lot of people's mouth when a broker does what you just described. Yeah. So.
1: Absolutely. All right, Max, this is good stuff. Any other tips or tricks before we, uh, before we jump?
2: Um, I'd say probably, uh, you know, for, um, for just getting in front of brokers ones that, you know, that know what the hell they're doing. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of us out there that do, um, and I know it sounds a little cocky, but I mean, I've been doing this since Oh nine. So I kind of feel like I can say that, yeah. uh, but before it was cool, yeah, before it was trendy, yeah. I was the only lone ranger in South in the South. Uh, and I've bred a, a several competitors that compete with me and I'm, I'm still happy to be a part of the journey, but I always sometimes kick myself like, damn it. What the hell was I doing? <laughs> But uh, I told somebody
1: yesterday. I said, "What do you think my hourly rate would be if I was the only lawyer in America?" And she looks at me. She's like, "A lot higher." I was like, <laughs> "Right." So we were. I was like, "Supply." I was trying to explain supply and demand. You know,
2: that's, that's right. That's, that's right. right. But uh, I'd say it, you find a good broker. Treat them like treat them like gold because they will bring you more deal flow than you can probably take down. Uh, don't try to retrade them on fee. Uh, you know, try to meet them face to face. Check in with them with a phone call or a text. Do not email because we get a zillion emails. I know how many emails for it I get from people like, I'm looking for city water and sewer, all lot rent in a metropolitan area with owner financing at a 10 cap. I'm like, like, all right, man. Well, me too. Me too. Me too. too. I'm looking for one of those two. Uh, But like, but all seriousness, like just check in with them monthly because we get new deals in. Like we're probably averaging about five new leads. We get about a lead every day. Um, so I would say just check in like every bi-monthly. Give them a call, shoot them a text. Hey, you got anything new out there? And you'd be surprised. You know, meeting them face to face too is a big deal. Like I mentioned earlier, so that and. Uh, you know, check out the credit unions. They're still doing deals out there if you've got a good relationship. The banks are kind of hard right now because they're touch and go. One month they're ready, the next month they're not. So it's just, uh, like I said, use your resources, call Ferd if you need some lawyer tips and and doing some stuff like that. Like he's specialized and I think Ferd, you buy deals too. So um, you're uh, very much involved in it like, my, like me and, Like I said, just stick with the people that have been in the industry a long time and you will typically do well and treat them right. That's it.
1: Hey, good tips. Max, where can people find you?
2: Uh, You can find us by visiting www.themhpbroker.com, themobilehomeparkbroker.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of stuff there call our phone number at 678-932-0200, 678-932-0200, or email me at info at the MHPbroker.com. You can also sign up as a buyer. Uh, we have a buyer's guide that you will get for free. It's a nice little book that gives you all the tips and tricks, talks about bonus depreciation, conservation easements, All these little, you know, all this stuff that you can do uh, when it comes to buying deals and what you should consider. So take a look at it, spend a lot of time on it. And if you're a seller, obviously give me a call. Happy to provide you a free analysis or broker opinion of value, free of charge. And we'll tell you what we think it'll trade at based off of where we're seeing lenders are at and what buyers are saying. So happy to add as much value to y'all's journey as possible. So, yeah, thanks, Ferd.
0: All right. Thanks, Max. Appreciate it.